guys. Thanks for tuning in to the God Besotted Podcast, where we dig into scripture so we can delight in God more. I'm your host, Karina, and we are back in our series on the attributes of God. In this episode, we're going to look at God's grace. Scripture calls God the God of all grace, and we're going to see just a small glimpse of why. I think it's going to be a good time, so let's just get right into it. All right, well, I hope you will forgive that we're going to start on a bit of a serious note. I'm going to ask you a question and I want you to answer honestly. I want you to picture the person in your life or from your past who has hurt you the most deeply. Picture that person, picture the hurt that they caused, picture the things that they've done that have made you put them in that category and think of them that way. And now that you have that person in mind, I want you to picture them in heaven with you. And so as you're picturing that, I want to ask how that picture makes you feel. And moving a bit on from that, I want you to picture Adolf Hitler. And now that you have him in mind and the atrocities that he's responsible for in mind, I want you to picture him in heaven with you. How does that make you feel? It's serious. It's a very serious thing to consider. But here's the thing. We're talking about grace in this episode. And it is this behemoth of a topic. I've just been uh, studying this to prepare for this episode and, and it could fill pages and pages and pages of books, this topic of grace. We could talk about God's grace forever and we will. Scripture says that even the angels are stunned at the grace of God. And as you picture yourself praising God in heaven and you see yourself as the recipient of his lavish, free costly grace and then you picture beside you the person who has hurt you most or a person who has done unspeakable evil in the world your feelings toward that scenario the idea of the two of you or the three of you praising God in heaven together the feelings that likely rise up as you consider that illustrate what's been called the scandal of grace grace is scandalous It's scandalous. Grace is God's favor, his sovereign and saving goodwill toward people, his heaping of blessings upon people without regard for what they've done or who they are. It's his goodwill shown to those who don't deserve it. And the truth is, the person who hurt you the most deeply, and Hitler, and you and me, none of us do. None of us do deserve the grace of God. That means anyone who puts their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior can receive grace. Anyone. The worst person you've ever met and the most self-righteous person you've ever met as well. Anyone can come to God by faith and be saved. They could be singing next to you in the heavenly throne room for all eternity. No matter what they or you have done in the past. That is the scandal of grace. We're going to see in this episode that grace humbles us and it honors us. And I'm going to do my best in these next few minutes to try to put my arms around this huge and hugely important topic. 
And so I hope what we talk about in this episode both brings you back to the foot of the cross, brings you kneeling to the foot of the cross, and lifts you up to where we are seated in glory, Scripture says, right beside Jesus in the heavenly places. The grace of God in Christ towards sinners is the gospel. And grasping the grace of God in Christ by faith is what transforms us, what propels us toward maturity, what deepens our love for God and for others. Grace is scandalous. Grace humbles us. It honors us. It's important. So let's define grace before we get into two key points. It's common to hear grace defined as unmerited favor, and that is a good definition of grace, but we're going to look at scripture to see why. So the Hebrew word that's translated grace in the Old Testament actually just means favor. There's no mention of whether this favor is deserved by the person receiving it or not, whether this favor is merited or not. But as always, the context and the way in which words are used is what shapes our understanding of a word's meaning. So we need to look at a few scriptures where grace comes up to understand the word better. The first reference to God's grace, to his favor in scripture, is in the narrative of Noah and the flood. Scripture tells us in Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. This is a very grim commentary on the condition of all of humanity. All of humankind was exceedingly sinful to their very core. And so scripture tells us that God was going to punish them for their sin. He was going to send a great flood. But amazingly, in verse 8, just a few verses later, we read, Yet Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. To find favor in the eyes of God means that God demonstrates his delight. God showed his approval and his friendship toward Noah by reaching out to Noah and giving him a warning and a command about the coming flood. God said there is a flood coming, that's a warning, and he gave him a command, build an ark. And this ark was to be the means of God's salvation of Noah and his family. But the question is, why did Noah receive favor? Why did he get grace while the rest of the world didn't? It's easy to look at the scripture and say at first glance, well, it's because Noah was blameless. The scripture says of Noah that he was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. So it's easy to look at that description of him and say this was why he received the favor of God. It's because he was good while other people were wicked. But we have to be really careful here because scripture tells us that although Noah was more righteous than the world around him, in comparison to the wicked world, he was deemed blameless because he walked with God. He was not chosen to build the ark because he was righteous. You say, well, why not? Because Noah could never be righteous enough to earn the favor of God. In chapter 8 of Genesis, After the flood and after Noah and his family get off the ark and Noah offers sacrifices to God, 
God makes a promise not to flood the earth again. You remember the sign is the rainbow in the sky. And God says, I'm making this promise despite how sinful the human race continues to be. God, in making this promise not to flood the earth, repeats the earlier commentary on humanity's sinful condition. Earlier, the scripture told us that the intentions of man's heart was only wicked continually. And now God says, I promise not to flood the earth for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. That means that the human race after the flood continued to be sinful. That includes Noah and his family. In fact, that's only Noah and his family because they were the only ones living. So Noah did not receive God's favor because he deserved it. His righteousness before God, his intimacy with God as he walked with God, did not win him brownie points. No, God chose to show favor to Noah for his own sovereign purposes. But something else to take note of is that Noah didn't receive favor apart from his obedience. If God had given Noah a warning and a command, and Noah had ignored these warnings and these commands, he would have drowned like everyone else. But when God spoke to him, Noah responded in faith. Hebrews 11:7 says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark. So Noah received the grace of God, which was given to him purely out of God's choice. He received it by faith. So grace is God's favor toward those who don't deserve it. And this is true throughout the rest of the Old Testament as well. In Exodus 34, the Lord revealed himself to Israel as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The God who made the heavens and the earth had chosen a people for himself. He had called one man who became 12 tribes, whose descendants were enslaved in Egypt, and God rescued them. He spared no sign. He spared no wonder in getting them out of slavery. He told them he had plans to make them a great nation, to give them their own land, and to walk amongst them as their God, while they would be his people. But his people were extremely stiff-necked. That means they were stubborn, just like you and just like me. In Deuteronomy, after many occasions when God had shown unbelievable favor to his people, and yet the people had still been unfaithful, God continued to confirm his promises to be good to them. But first, he took a moment in this passage in Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 6, he took a moment to remind them why he had shown favor to them in the first place. He tells them, this is why I was gracious to you. Listen to what he says. Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven the people living in the land of Canaan out before you. Don't say this in your heart. Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. God says no. It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness 
or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. Did that passage seem a bit repetitive? Did it seem a bit um, repetitious? That's because God wanted to make a point. He really didn't choose the people of Israel because they were holy. He chose them because he wanted to. And if they would receive his grace and put their faith in him, he would make them holy and set apart as his people. So that's the Old Testament, a bit of a overview of grace. And that brings us to the New Testament. In the New Testament, in Paul's writings especially, grace is specifically salvation through faith apart from works. We don't have time to get into this very thoroughly, but an example of how this word grace is used and what it means in the New Testament comes up in 2 Timothy 1.9. In that verse, Paul says to Timothy, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Quite a lot to unpack in this verse, but we can notice three things about grace. First, it is eternal. It is purposed before time began. Second, it is sovereign. It is given to those whom God chooses. And third, it is given through Christ. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose. There's his sovereignty and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. That's the mediation of his grace, the way his grace goes through in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Eternal grace. So grace is eternal, it is sovereign, and it is given to us through Christ. The point of all of these passages, and as we're trying to define grace, what we need to keep in the forefront of our minds as we move forward in these next two points, is that God didn't show grace to us because we were worthy. God showed grace to us because he wanted to. It was out of an overflow of his goodness and his love. And in showing us this grace as we receive it by faith, God makes us worthy in Christ as his people. So now that we have defined grace from scripture, we're going to look at two key points about grace. And the first is grace is humbling. Grace is humbling. Over the past few years, I've had the privilege to have a few memorable conversations with some individuals that are very dear to my heart who profess to be followers of Christ and they're people I love and um, at the same time they're people who based on some of these conversations I think don't really understand grace. A common theme that's come up, a common thread that these individuals have said uh, to me is things like, I can't believe God is good because he let this bad thing happen to me. Or on the flip side, I can't believe God is good because he didn't let this good thing happen to me. 
What is the underlying message of these statements? God is good if he gives me what I think I deserve. He is not good if he withholds what I think I deserve. What is wrong with this thinking? You've probably already seen it in the context of what we've been talking about. Underneath this thinking is the assumption that we deserve good things. It's the assumption that we have something to commend us to God, some quality or some track record that qualifies us to be recipients of God's kindness. And the truth is, it's not just these individuals that I've spoken to uh, that fall into this type of thinking. It's all of us who are liable to fall into this thinking if we are not careful about putting the gospel before us constantly. Maybe it's our church attendance or how we don't cuss a lot or how we abstain from alcohol. Maybe it's the fact that we have generally good theology or that we help those in need or we pray often or we pray fervently. When something bad happens to us or something good doesn't happen to us and our gut reaction is to question God's goodness and to think about our righteousness, which we think merits us a certain kind of life, What's underneath? We are misunderstanding grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is God's demonstrated delight towards us. Us who apart from Christ are not delightful and have done nothing nor could do anything to delight him. And when we suffer as Christians, as those who God does delight in, in Christ, the truth is, and the difficult thing is, that God still does not owe us anything. Out of his grace, he promises to do us who are in Christ good and only good as his children. But it's not because he owes us anything. It's because he is the God of all grace. It's not about our worthiness, but his character. I hope you're familiar with the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. And I hope you're familiar with the actions of both the younger brother and the elder brother and the father in that parable. If you're not, I would encourage you to pause the episode, read that parable in Luke 15. But the elder brother in the parable gets really angry towards the end, if you remember. What made him so angry? His father threw a party for his wayward brother who had just returned home after squandering the family's wealth and disgracing the father. The father in the parable showed honor and showed favor to the son, even though he had been disgraced and even though the son had shamed the entire family. And the elder brother, the one who had stayed, was livid. He thought his brother surely didn't deserve this treatment. But more importantly, he felt that he, as the one who had stayed, as the one who had remained outwardly submissive to the father, he felt that he did deserve this special treatment, this party, this feast, this honor. Where was his mistake? The elder brother thought his father owed him something. He thought his good works warranted good things in life. The elder brother didn't love his father. He wanted to use his father to get stability and to get power and to get control and honor. He wanted an inheritance and security and a good name. He wanted to trust in what he had done to earn him his good things in life. 
Ultimately, the elder brother was driven by a desire for quite a lot of things, but the desire to please his father was not one of those driving factors. But what's so stunning about the end of the parable is that even though this is the picture of the elder brother that we get, and we know that Jesus is telling this parable to the Pharisees, and he means for the Pharisees to see themselves in this elder brother character. What's so stunning about the end of the parable is that even though the elder brother acts this way, the father still invites him to the feast, still implores him to join the festivities, to come to the party. That is grace. Neither son deserved to enjoy the feast. Not the one who had left and not the one who had stayed. Neither son deserved the father's love. But the father invites them both. And the sad thing is that what stops the elder brother from going in is his pride, his self-righteousness. The fact that he wanted to be his own savior. He wanted his good works to merit him good things in life. And it doesn't work that way. So grace is humbling because we can't earn it, no matter how hard we try. In his book, The Attributes of God, A.W. Pink quotes another author named G.S. Bishop. And this author had this to say about grace. He said, grace is a provision for men who are so fallen that they cannot lift the acts of justice, so corrupt that they cannot change their own natures so averse to God that they cannot turn to him, so blind that they cannot see him, so deaf that they cannot hear him, and so dead that he himself must open their graves and lift them into resurrection. The truth is that grace is profoundly humbling. But it's not just that we don't deserve grace because of our sin. It's that we do deserve punishment for our sin. In talking about this truth, theologians have called humans ill-deserving and hell-deserving. Scripture says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. What are wages? Wages are what you get paid for the work you do. Wages are your paycheck, what you're owed. Apart from Christ, we all act like we're owed good from God. The elder brother in Jesus' parable certainly thought he deserved the good life based on his outward obedience to his father. But the truth is, the only paycheck we're owed as sinners who reject God is punishment, is death. But thank God, in Romans 6.23, Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with the wages of sin. He says, yes, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace, then, is unmerited favor given to undeserving sinners who deserve death, but instead receive life, the gift of life. If this is God's gift to us, how do we receive it? That's a natural question. How can we receive grace if we don't deserve it and in fact we deserve punishment? And scripture's answer is that the only way to receive this grace is through faith. Why? Faith is the only attitude that involves trusting in and depending upon someone else. That is why it is the only attitude that can poise someone to receive grace. Faith is an acknowledgement that you are wholly and woefully inadequate to earn, win, or buy your salvation. 
Faith is throwing yourself on Jesus as your Savior instead of trusting in yourself. Faith is abandoning any pretense of pride and any ability to save yourself. Faith is saying, with man, it is impossible for men to be saved. But with God, all things are possible. So grace is humbling. But, and this is our second point, grace is also honoring. Grace is honoring. Last September, I was asked to share a few devotional messages with some women at a retreat. And one of the things that stuck with me was this remark that one of the ladies made to me after one of my messages. She said, what I enjoy about your teaching is that you don't overemphasize the depravity of man. She said, you don't overemphasize how sinful we are, how lowly we are, how we're worms. You talk about victory in Christ and joy in Christ and being valuable to God. And that's just so refreshing. And I thanked her, you know, for her remark and um, went on my way. But I thought long and hard about that comment in, in the days and weeks afterwards because I never want to water down the gospel. And as we've been saying, grace, the gospel, is not good news if you aren't humbled by it. The message that you're a sinner who can be saved by grace through faith starts with your sin. And even after we're saved, we continually need to remind ourselves of this truth in order to truly live as Jesus calls us to live. So after she said that, I was a bit unsure if I had communicated that enough in the messages I gave, and I worried about that some. But I've had time to think about that comment since then, and I think I know um, what this woman was getting at. I think I know why she said that. The truth is that there are sections of Christianity. Typically, these are sections and denominations that hold to a strong belief in the doctrine that we are what's called totally depraved. We're unable to bring ourselves to God. We are dead in our sin. Um, Typically, these sections that hold to this do overemphasize sin. And and really, it's not that they overemphasize sin, it's that they underemphasize the fact that grace is not just humbling, it is honoring. The full picture of grace is incomplete if we don't see this truth as well. Grace does not just save you from your sin, it saves you to a new life in Christ. It does not just free you from your chains, it sets you on a throne. Grace does not just remove God's frown when he looks at you as a sinner, but it sets you before him as a saint who delights him, as a child and an heir who brings a smile to his face instead of a frown. Listen to Ephesians 2 verses 5 through 7. Scripture says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul says Jesus was dead and he was made alive and he rose and he ascended to heaven and he sits on a throne in glory. And he says, as believers, we share in all of this. We were dead. We were made alive. 
we rose and we will one day ascend to heaven and share completely in Jesus' glory forever. In a real sense, this is already our reality. We've been given new life, blessings in Christ. Our fellowship with God has been restored. We're indwelled by the very Spirit of God, and we have power over sin. And in another sense, the fullness of this reality is still to come. So the full picture of grace is that it is not only humbling, it is also honoring. It's not just that you got let out of a bad place where you deserved to be for the wrong you did. It's as Tim Keller puts it, it is that you got led into a place that you don't have a right to be. And that place, scripture tells us, is the heavenly throne room, the place where the triune God rules in glory. Again, we can turn to the parable of the prodigal son to see an illustration of this. After he left his father's house, after he disgraced his father and shamed the family, the prodigal son realized how he had wronged his father. He came to his senses. He saw his sin and he wanted to be restored to his father. But when he came back, he didn't ask for his status to be restored. He definitely didn't want to feed pigs anymore, but he was so convicted of his sin that he was willing to serve his father as a hired servant, not as a son. But how did his father respond when he came home? His father gave him a hug, wrapped him in his own robe of honor, and threw him a party. His father was elated that he had come home. The younger brother came home because he knew his father had food to spare. But what he got when he came was much more than scraps of leftover food. He got an entire banquet. That is salvation by grace through faith. We were dead and God makes us alive. He doesn't just give us a position in his kingdom as hired servants. He reinstates all the blessings that we have as children of God. He gives us an inheritance. He gives us glory and power. And the passage in Ephesians says he does it all out of his love. And so that for ages and ages to come, he could show the entire cosmos the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It will take an entire eternity for us to begin to fathom the depths of the grace of God. It's like the song says, if his grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. So grace is humbling and grace is honoring. And I'll add just in closing that grace is also what holds us fast. The grace of God is how we start the Christian life and how we are sustained in the Christian life. So continually reminding ourselves of the truths of the gospel is what will transform us into the image of Christ. In 2 Peter 3.18, Peter tells believers, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Grow in, that is, grow by means of the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. As we receive Jesus' grace day by day, and as our knowledge of him deepens through our intimacy with him, we become more like him. So grounding ourselves in the gospel, in the grace of God, is how we'll grow, period. There is no other way. 
So if you are listening and you feel like you haven't been able to have victory over some sin, or you're discouraged about your growth in Christ or about some pattern of sin that's been persisting in your life, my encouragement to you is to consider the gospel. Consider the gospel. Stare at the grace of God in Christ. Turn it over and over again in your mind until you see it and you savor it and you can apply it to your situation. Scripture says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Scripture repeatedly encourages us to certain things based on the gospel. When Paul wants to encourage the believers at Corinth to give, he tells them, remember, Christ was made poor for you so that you would be made rich. When Paul wants to encourage believers to be good wives and good husbands, he tells them to look at Christ who died for the church. Over and over again, we are directed to the gospel to encourage our growth in Christ. And so whatever sin you may be dealing with, whatever sin you may be seeking victory over, God's grace is infinite. It knows no limit. And it doesn't matter how you've sinned before or how you've sinned since becoming a Christian. God's grace is sufficient to cover your sin and to compel you to become more like Christ. John says in chapter 1 of his gospel, For of the fullness of Christ we have all received, and grace upon grace. I love that the last verse in the New Testament is, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. And I just think that's so fitting. The God of all grace, from whom we have received grace, will never let us go. And my prayer for us this week is that the grace of Jesus would be with us, humbling us, honoring us, and holding us fast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the God Besotted Podcast. I am so grateful for every opportunity that I get to share God's word with you so that we can all know God more deeply and love him and his people more. If you're loving this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a rating and a review wherever you listen to the podcast and join me each Monday as we continue our series on the attributes of God. Plus, don't forget to come find me on Instagram at God underscore Besotted. I would love to connect with you there. So until next time, may we be God besotted in all that we do.